the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God. One young exile with uncompromising faith. This is God's grand plan to achieve the unimaginable. Well, we're still in the book of Daniel, but before we get into the book this morning, so many people have been asking me how Kathy's doing. Let me just bring in a little bit of a report. It was a very, very rough week. We were back at the hospital on Monday morning with uh, incredible pain. And so there was more testing, spent the week actually in the hospital. Uh, But through this, uh, I do have to say we both see God working, uh, doing different things and and certainly moving, even if we don't get everything explained. For those that are not yet informed, some of it has been intense headaches that she's had to live with for the past couple of months. When I say intense, meaning towards the level of nines and tens, regularly out of a scale of 10, and then abdominal pain has been very, very intense as well. And so we're still looking for the cause of this and what's happening. So as you continue to pray, uh, please pray that we will find a, a path forward as all of this is unfolding. She wasn't able to make it this morning. She's tried to, each Sunday, she goes, I can do it, I can do it, I can do it. And then, of course, uh, it, it gets pretty intense. But she has made it a couple Sundays, and then uh, this morning she's worshiping online with us. She loves this church, and she loves uh, being a part of it. I got to say, too, that God has shown up in so many ways. We have an amazing medical system. And when I say that, I don't mean nice equipment and beautiful stuff like that. I'm talking about people, people that have served Kathy so, so well in all the places we've been, and we've been in a lot of them, Uh, and a lot of people in Fox Valley Church as well have been uh, just coming alongside, blessing us, and I could point to a lot of them, but I do want to point out one situation uh, that really, really uh, touched both Kathy and me very, very deeply. After a service one day, uh, a couple weeks ago, a 10-year-old boy, I'll leave him nameless, he, he comes up to me and he says, he says, when I broke my leg, you, you prayed for me. And he goes, I want to pray for your wife right now. And so here he comes forward and, and just says this most beautiful prayer. I wish I had the presence of mind to record that prayer. It was so heartfelt, so deep, and can I say theological? It was just beautiful, a testimony. And I I could point to so many other things, but I I bring this out is partly because I'm so excited about what's happening in Journeyland, that we're training up a new generation of people, but they're living it out. And he boldly came forward to uh, bring this prayer. Well, as we transition a little bit, we all know that a lot has happened this week in our world. Certainly, the developments in the Middle East continue to expand and grow and grab our attention. And of course, we're all concerned where where that's going to go. And then, of course, the hurricane that slammed into Mexico, and then the mass shooting that we had in Maine. And all these things have a way of, of undermining 
our faith, our confidence in God. It can create fear and anxiety. Even the stuff my wife has been going through, right? It, it creates fear and anxiety because it's like, where is all this going? And what happens is we, we got to pull back and we got to remember that God is at work and that nothing, not a bullet coming from a shooter, not a hurricane slamming into the coast, not the stuff in the Middle East, none of this happens without God's sovereign control and Him at work. Now what happens is it threatens, it attacks our belief in the goodness of God. Is He really good that He would allow a, a mass shooting to take place of so many innocent lives? Is, is it really a good God that, that is, is doing these things in the Middle East? Is this really a good God, right? And then it trips into the threat of, is God powerful? Is he able to stop this stuff? Maybe he can't. Maybe he's a good God, but he's just not able. You see how it threatens and then the last area it threatens is the wisdom of God. You know, maybe God is powerful. Maybe he is good, but God bless him. He really doesn't know what he's doing. He's not all wise. And so Satan goes after these three areas. It's not only in my life and my wife's life and lives of here, but it's in your life too. And so I want to pray for us as we dive into this because a big part of what's happening in the book of Daniel is that those three areas are being threatened by the exiles. They're questioning, is God really good? Is God really powerful? Is God really wise? So whatever you're going through, whatever's happening in your life, you need to know this God that we worship, he is sovereign, means he's got all power. He is a good God. He's a good father. He's always good. He can never do evil. And this God we worship is wise. He is skillfully working this world, including all of these events that are happening in the world and in your life. He's engineering it all for his glory and ultimately, the unimaginable future that he has for you and for me and all that name the name of Jesus. So let's pray together. Father, we so love you. We so worship you. We exalt you. We just praise your holy name. And this morning, as we look at the book of Daniel, we're asking that you would bring us deeper into the truths of your word. God, would you reveal yourself in fresh ways today? That when we leave, we leave with a greater confidence, a stronger boldness, and a resilience so that we won't flag in the moment when we get attacked. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen, amen, amen. Now, some people have asked me a few questions as I've looked at this study of Daniel. And of course, from the very beginning, I have not... Uh, tried to elevate Daniel. I think Daniel's a cool figure. I think Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are awesome. And as you know, I like to say to help you remember their names, shake the bed, make the bed, and to bed we go, right? So we got Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And as awesome as these young men are, it's not truly a story about them. They are weak and fragile 
but they have something that we want, right? They believed in this great God and they knew him and that's why we talked about it. It's really a story about what God is doing. Now, I wanna give you uh, four things this morning about God's grand plan to achieve the unimaginable. This is how I'm reading the book of Daniel. So you understand when I read it, these are the ways that I'm approaching it. Here's the first one. The events of Daniel must be set in the larger context of God's grand plan. Now, what am I saying there, right? The events took place at the end of the 7th century B.C., Right, So in 605 B.C., what happens is we get the Babylonians sweeping in there. And we could say, oh, that's a nice slice of life. But if you believe what the Bible teaches from Genesis to Revelation, that God is orchestrating history. And just because it's God orchestrating history and not these world leaders, men and women of power, but it's God, it doesn't mean that it's not history. Just because we can point to, say, in the 20th century, someone like a Hitler and say, oh, that's historical and that's factually true, that's no less true to say that God is operating from creation all the way to the new creation. It's factually true. It's historically true. And so God has his plan from the beginning when he created, and he's working us all the way through from Genesis 1 all the way to Revelation 22. And it's this unimaginable plan. I try to describe it. I get excited about it. I want you to imagine it. It is huge what God is doing. And for people that do not have faith, they do not see God's fingerprints on all that's happening in the world. And so we need to read Daniel as not like, whoa, the Babylonians, what, what, what happened? And God's like, I don't know what's happening. This spun out of control. Let's see if I can fix it. That's not the case. God, according to Daniel and according to Habakkuk and according to Jeremiah and Isaiah, God brought the Babylonians. Let me say it again. God brought the Babylonians. He didn't merely allow the Babylonians, like, hey, they're flexing their muscle, they got weaponry, they are now the world power at the end of the seventh century. It's not the way the Bible reads. The Bible tells us God brought them. So what's happening in Daniel has got to be set in this larger context. Now, the larger context, number two, God's grand plan focuses on the rescue of his people by grace through faith. So remember what happened in Genesis chapter three. There was this rebellion, right? There's this couple, Adam and Eve, a literal historical couple, right? They rebel against God, and immediately God sets in motion the plan. Now, that doesn't mean that God was shocked or surprised that they took the fruit of the tree, right, and ate it. It didn't shock God. He knew it. He said before the world was even created, he had the plan. So he knew it was coming. My point is, is as soon as it happened, because we live in time and space, because we're part of history, God immediately sweeps in and starts unfolding his plan. 
because he's wanting to rescue his people. Remember this, you are not saved by faith. You are not. You are saved by grace through faith. It's God's goodness. It's God's grace. It's his gift to rescue you and me out of darkness. He rescues us, and how do we experience that grace? Through faith, right? So we receive this rescue, this salvation, this deliverance from sin and evil and death by faith. So God is in this plan, and part of God working out his plan is that in Daniel, he's still rescuing his people. You know what he's doing today in your life? He's rescuing you from darkness. He says that we are not only saved, past tense, we're secure, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says we are being saved. We are constantly being delivered. That's why I love what Pastor Brad did this morning, just leading us constantly to the throne of grace so that we would encounter God and exalt over God, rejoice at what God is doing. And when you do that, guess what you're doing? You are breaking, you are shattering, you are smattering the chains of sin that are part of our lives and setting us free more and more. And so that's what God wants to do, and he was delivering his people in the book of Daniel. He's constantly rescuing you. So you have a bondage, God's rescuing you out of it. There's something that, that, that kind of has hold on you, God wants to break those chains. He is rescuing his people. Thirdly, Daniel gives God's people a vision of him at work to rescue his people. These aren't just like miracle stories, and by the way, can I just say, a lot of secular historians, and can I even say some evangelical historians, deny the historicity of Daniel. And they're going to build a case of why this isn't happening, why these were fabricated stories. I mean, come on, they, they are amazing stories thrown into a fiery furnace and not even smell like smoke. When was the last time you were around a campfire and didn't smell like smoke, right? When was the last time you maybe were messing with a fire and your hair didn't get singed, right? But these guys, their hair wasn't singed. They didn't smell like smoke. They were unfazed, untouched by it. Now, that doesn't happen. Well, wait a minute. It does happen if there's an all-powerful God in heaven that can make it happen. And then you can go on and talk about the prophetic nature of it. Historians are saying there's no way that Daniel could have known what he knew. Well, let me tell you, you can say that he knows because there's a God in heaven that knows the future. And he can reveal whatever he wants to reveal. But then they'll go on and say, wait a minute, we find in ancient literature we find in ancient literature, be careful of that phrase. Just because we find something in ancient literature that there are books written that look prophetic, but we know were written after the fact, anybody can write in about an event. Hey, there was a mass shooting in, in Maine this past week, right? But if I wrote it two weeks ago, that would be this future predictive prophecy. They say, well, it's written after the fact because there's no way you could know. So we find historical books where they try to write things after the fact to make them look like prophecies so that you'll be tricked, so that you'll believe that it was prophetic, so you could trust in this God. Well, let me just tell you, why go there? 
If this God doesn't know the future, we are in a lot of trouble. And that trouble is worse than the other. Other historians will say, well, in the ancient Near East, they say this. Just because the ancient Near East, Mesopotamia, and all these other countries were doing these different things doesn't mean that God wasn't doing something unique in his people. It doesn't mean we don't read our Bible historically. I am a big proponent of reading our Bibles historically. It was written at a certain time. What I'm saying is that that cannot control all of our reading of the biblical text. If you read that way, you are slipping into modernism, and that will always lead you down a dead end. So what we're reading here is that God is at work, and he wanted his people to see him at work. He wanted them to see that he could rescue someone out of a fiery furnace because he could rescue them out of Babylon. He wanted them to see that these kings, Nebuchadnezzar, the greatest king at that time in the world, the superpower of the world, he wanted his people to see that he's merely a pawn in God's plan right? He needed the people to see this vision. And you and I need to have this vision that what's happening in the world, yes, it's shaking the world. People are living in fear. They're anxious that this might not spin out of control in the Middle East and that it might not happen in Ukraine, etc. But God wants you and me by reading the book of Daniel to have a vision that every, every leader, world leader is there because God said yes. And he will remove them when he's ready. We need to have that confidence. The last one is Daniel's end time focus moves God's people to persevere. I want to make another comment about Israel and what's happening with Hamas. Until you and I see that God has his people that he loves, that he's chosen, that he's set apart, that he has a future for. So a couple weeks ago, I read you Romans chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. Why did I do that? Because that's God telling you and me he has a future for Israel. When you've got a God who's got people, and now he's folding Gentiles, i.e. you and me, into his people. There's only one people of God, Jews and Gentiles, that he's selected, right? As God brings these people in, they are his treasured possession. Psalm 149 verse 4 says that, that God just looks at his people with pleasure right? He, he looks at you right now, and, and he's just, you can see him grinning from ear to ear. He, he just smiles on his people. And, and this is part of God's grand plan. So what happens? There's an enemy that hates God's people. And so what you and I are seeing happening in the Middle East, through Hamas, other hate groups, even some moving through nations, right, is that, of course, the they hate God's people. They hate what he's doing. They hate what he's about. So rather than us looking at it just from a political perspective, let's look at it from a theological perspective and that God has his people. And just like people are turning against the Jews now, people will turn against you if you name the name of God right? Because you're his people. And there's people that are not going to stand in the direction that you want to stand with 
God and the things of God. So what we see here is Daniel's end time focus moves God, God's people to persevere so that when you get attacked, when things turn sideways, you and I can persevere. Why? Because there's a God that's at work in history moving things along just the way he wants things to move. And so I want to just take a moment. I want to pray again and pray for Israel and pray for what God's doing. God, we just thank you that you're in control. Thank you that you have your people. And God, we don't understand a lot of what you're doing. We don't understand with the hardness of so many Jews that they won't accept Jesus as the Messiah. So we pray for that this morning, that they would see Jesus as the Messiah, the promised one, and that the Muslims that are there, that they would see Jesus not only as a good prophet or a great prophet, but the greatest prophet, but more than a prophet that he is God in the flesh, God. Open the eyes of these people. Open our eyes to see the beauty and magnificence of it even more. And while we pray for the spiritual reformation, the spiritual revival, we also pray, pray for peace. We pray, God, that you would bring peace to the Middle East. We pray, God, that you would restore the things that make for good and well-being of all your people. So God, we pray for that. We pray that you would protect your people. We pray for wisdom in our leaders. We pray, God, that as this thing unfolds, that you would guide and direct it to your glory and that we would be reminded over and over, nobody can rob you of your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, this morning, we're going to look at three events that are in the book of Daniel very briefly, and then I want to draw three theological conclusions. Three events and three conclusions. Here's the first event, the dream. We're in Daniel chapter 4, and Daniel uh, is told by Nebuchadnezzar that there is this dream, right? And so in Daniel chapter 4, verses 4 and 5 and, and following, uh, I'm going to read a little bit of this passage. Daniel uh, reads, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid as I was lying in bed. The images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. Now, I want to skip ahead to verse 10. These are the visions I saw while lying in bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree. In the middle of the land, its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it, the wild animals found shelter, and the birds lived in its branches. From every creature was fed. From it, every creature. Verse 13 in the visions I saw while lying in bed, I looked, and there before me was a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, cut down the tree and trim off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but let the stump and its roots bound with iron and bronze remain in the ground, in the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass by for him. So that's the first event. There's this dream. Event number two is 
Nebuchadnezzar goes insane. Verse 28 of chapter 4, right? There's this insanity, and we're going to get this picture of what happens. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar 12 months later. Now, we're really at the end of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, and it's, it's getting into the last two years. It says, 12 months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You'll eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth and gives them to everyone he wishes. So that's the second. He wouldn't bow down to God. He continued to exalt himself. And God said, okay, I'm going to give it to you. And he goes insane for seven years. Event number three, the writing on the wall. Now we're in Daniel chapter 5, verse 5. This is a different king. This is Belshazzar. I had a dream that made me afraid. I was lying in bed. The images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. This is the inscription, or skipping to verse 25, right? This is the inscription that was written on the wall. This is at a feast for Belshazzar. Not Belshazzar, that's Daniel. Remember, they gave him a Babylonian name. This is Belshazzar. This is the son of Nebuchadnezzar, probably really the grandson. Uh, sometimes when the uh, Aramaic is used, you can use son or grandson, and you've got to let the context clarify. He says in verse 25 of chapter 5, this is the inscription that was written, was written, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. Here's what these words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. And Paris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. So those are the three big events of chapter 4 and chapter 5. A dream, the king Nebuchadnezzar going insane, and then this big feast of Belshazzar who then sees this writing on the wall, mysteriously, miraculously etched into the wall. Well, what is the significance of this? Now, remember, Daniel was written to exiles. Daniel was written to us as exiles, right? We are strangers. This is not our home. You want to make this your home, go ahead. (laughs) But I'm telling you, you'd be disappointed. God has something bigger and better. It's better to see that our citizenship is in heaven and that we are exiles, right? And so what we need to do is look through the eyes of the exiles and say, what was God trying to say to them? That's what I mean by looking at it theologically. What was God trying to say to his people besides that God could write on a wall? What was he trying to say besides that he could make a king, a great king, go into insanity, right? So here's the three ideas that I want to bring out this first. Here's the first one. One, the spirit of the age is pride, is pride. One of the big takeaways that's hard to miss is that Nebuchadnezzar was a proud, arrogant king. And God's people were in part in exile because of their arrogance, because of their pride. God hates pride. 
He hates arrogance. Guess what he loves? Humility. He loves humility. Humility starts with submission to Christ. You can never be a a humble person if you are not submitted to Jesus Christ, right? So we can look at humble people that are not Christians, but they're not truly humble people. It's only when we begin to see who Christ is. So pride is a disposition of the heart. And it's the disposition that says Jesus Christ is not enough. It's not until we start saying Jesus Christ is powerful and I am weak. Jesus Christ is wise and I'm foolish. Jesus Christ is rich and I am poor. Jesus Christ is omniscient. He knows everything and I am often ignorant. Jesus Christ is self-sufficient and I am totally dependent. The bottom line for you and me is that until we exercise faith, pride will flourish. It is by exercising faith that we kill pride. Now, it's not if pride exists in your heart. It's there. The question is where and how does it show up in your life? Don't miss that. It's not that there's not pride in your life. There's plenty in my own heart. But it's where and how does it show up in me? Because until I repent of my own pride and deal with the issues of my own heart, I will be lost. So Nebuchadnezzar, in chapter 4, verse 30, right? He, he's, he's in this, this mess of a situation. Look what he does. He says, is not this the great Babylon I have built? By my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. Let's just take those phrases apart so that you and I can begin to explore our own pride, our own issues that steal God's glory. So you got to listen to his heart, Here's the first one. Is this not the great Babylon? He looks at his empire, and what is he doing? He's saying, I am hungry for attention. Are you hungry for attention? Do you need the limelight? Do you need to be front and center stage? Do you need people to be looking at you? Are you always seeking to be seen? Maybe it's not being able to say no. You ever think of that? You got so much pride you can't say no because you want to be needed? These things get kind of tricky, don't they? Because there's things playing on in our heart that are very, very dangerous. Maybe it's a deep need to be seen in a certain way so that people will love us, accept us, and approve of us. So we see that Nebuchadnezzar has got this great empire that he wants. Secondly, he says, I have built. You could just see him sticking out his chest, right? So what do we do? We look at our houses. We look at our, our 401s. We look at our savings accounts, and we say, what? Oh, look at what I have saved. Look at the car I drive. Look at what I have accomplished. Look at what accolades I have made. Look at what my degrees tell me about myself, right? That's all pride, and we see Nebuchadnezzar doing. Look at what I have built. And of course, we probably know that Nebuchadnezzar built 
one of the great wonders of the ancient world, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, right? He, he was so proud of what he built. Pride is not only hungry for attention, but pride is presumptuous. It presumes that you accomplished. But where did you get the gifts to do what you did? Where did you get the strength to what you did? Where were you born? What comes out of because of where you were born? On and on it goes. Let me hit a third phrase. He says, by my mighty power. By my mighty power, right? There's a pretentiousness Stepsister of presumption is uh, pretension, right? There's this false show that it's by my power, right? I have all that much power, right? But we can start to believe these kind of things. I'm good at, right? It's always better, by the way, to let someone else tell you what you're good at than to be beating your own drum and saying, wow, I'm really good at this, right? And then he says, for my glory, the fourth phrase, pride is so self-righteous. You know, marital counseling is an amazing journey. So often, when couples are at each other's throat, they can no longer see the grace or goodness of their spouse. You know what that is? That's self-righteous. That's pride. That's thinking you're more than that. And so when we look at these things, we see that Nebuchadnezzar was so self-righteous. And so God said, we'll fix that. And he goes into the correction. That's my second big idea here. The power of God, correction. You know why God corrects people? Because he wants history to go where he wants it to go. And when we get involved in history, God wants your life to look a certain way. He wants it to honor him, to glorify him. So the power of God is correction. And so sometimes he brings the correction even to other non-believers, even Nebuchadnezzar. You'll be driven away from the people, it says in verse 32. He was driven away and he ate the grass of the field like an ox. And his nails grew long and his hair grew long, right? God is about developing his people. So what Israel needed to know what Judah needed to know. They were in Babylon because God was correcting his people. It was a course correction. It was discipline, Hebrews chapter 12. And God brings things into our lives to shape us. And what God wanted his people to know, his exiles, his POWs, is that I'm at work, I'm doing what I want to do, and I'm going to do the deep things that need to be done. And sometimes those deep things are painful. Let me hit the third area, the sovereignty of God, his glory. These, these words, mene, mene, tekel, parson, right? Those are Aramaic words. They're, they're actually a sequence of weights. You would say mina, mina, shekel, and then half a shekel. But what did they mean? Well, Daniel interpreted it for us so that we would understand, right? So as we look at this, God was doing these things. The first is, God has numbered the days of your reign. Well, now he's talking to Belshazzar, Nebuchadnezzar, the great king. He was this glorious tree. It gets cut down, and all that's left is a stump. Well, what's the stump? His son. And what he's saying is, your kingdom is going to come to an end. 
right? That, that's where he goes. He says, your kingdom will come to an end. God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, verse 27 of chapter 5, you have been weighed on the scales and found waiting, wanting. So Belshazzar, you've been weighed and you're not all that. And then finally, verse 28, Paris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. And guess what happens? Exactly that. Belshazzar dies, right? You get to the end of chapter 5. He's dead. And the Medes and Persians take over. But just listen for a moment. Can you hear those words right now? You're in the scale and found wanting. You're in the scale and found wanting. See, apart from Jesus Christ, we're nothing. We've got nothing. It matters nothing what you have. You're in the scale and you're found wanting until you are identified with Jesus Christ. Father, let those words echo in our ears that there is only one king, and it's not us, it's Jesus. And everything we do, if it's done apart from faith, it matters nothing. Everything will burn, wood, hay, and stubble, except for that which is done by faith to the glory of God. Oh, he's the only one worthy. Jesus is worthy. He's that lamb that was slain for us. He is so worthy. And so, God, as we close this this little section of Daniel, help us to see with clarity what you are doing and that we need to be hitched up to Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.